Hello and welcome to the spiritguides.co.uk network radio show with your host Mark Chatterton. Today I would like to welcome onto the show Dr. Jude Curriven, who is an acclaimed healer, cosmologist and astrologer. Jude has written five books, some of which we will be discussing today during the interview. She has also travelled widely, visiting many ancient sites all over the world. She is one of those rare academics who also has a strong belief in the spiritual. So a warm welcome to you, Jude. It's great to be with you, Mark, and our listeners. <laughs> okay, that's great. Let's start, if we go to the, back to your early years, because you first encountered the world of spirit when you were a little girl. Can you tell mm. us a little bit about that experience? Well, I was, I think like most kids, you know, it, it's perfectly natural to see um maybe things that others don't see or adults perhaps don't see. Um, and I started to have such experiences when I was about four years old. They began one evening. Um, I was settling down to sleep and a, a, literally a light, uh, a discarnate light came into my room. And I don't remember exactly the detail that went from that, but I, I do very clearly remember that that began uh, a communication with um, with a being that I came to know as Thoth, um, who the ancient Egyptians knew as their wisdom keeper, the god of wisdom. And over the years, that was so natural to me. Um, I started to see auras. I started to have precognitive experiences and, and, and many other um, that some people would say were paranormal or supernatural. For me, it's just part of the natural world. It's part of the way the cosmos actually is. And I suppose for many people, even if they've experienced that as, as a young kid, as I did, um, and I'm sure many of our listeners did, you know, either friends who haven't or teachers or parents or families or whatever, you know, if, if it tend to sort of shut that down, they say, oh, you're just imagining things or it's nonsense or don't be silly. I was never told that because I never shared it with anyone. <laughs> um, and so I just grew up believing but more importantly far more importantly experiencing those realities as just part of of my natural way of of living in the world fine um a few years later you went up to oxford to study physics um mm. was it hard for you sort of merging your spiritual beliefs with what you were discovering in science or did you find that everything you knew spiritually eventually fitted in with the science well, I guess I'd, I'd sort of begin by saying I don't see them as beliefs. Um, it's not a faith. It's not a belief as such. As an, it's a direct experience. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I wanted to go to Oxford because I was exploring. I'd explored for 14 years by that point um, leading edge science and also ancient wisdom and these experiences. These experiences of a completely interconnected and conscious cosmos. And I wanted to understand, you know, the, 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 the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling has this amazing painting by Michelangelo showing the finger of God almost touching the finger of Adam. And there's this little lightning bolt going between them. I wanted to understand how that lightning bolt worked. I really wanted to understand as best I could how these non-physical realms that I was exploring actually uh, plugged in with with the physical realm that that we experience as, as as our primary reality, so that's why I went to Oxford. And it was hard because what I found was a very limited perspective. 
um, of that. Fortunately, um, there was a man there called Dennis Sharma, who was a wonderful man, um, who really sort of uh, was very open, I think, to, to wider perspectives. Um, but I did find it quite narrow, but it was very, very helpful because it helped me to understand where, if you like, mainstream science, mainstream physics, quantum physics. So I had a very good grounding in quantum physics and, and cosmology that I've continued to build on independently ever since because, you know, quantum physics and, and, and relativity are now over a century or around a century old. And we're moving now into a much more expansive emergent understanding of, of, of the cosmos essentially as a hologram. Uh, we can explore that if you'd like to, but, but a lot of leading edge scientists are now talking in those terms of information as actually being more inf important than space and time, more fundamental than space and time and matter and energy. And they're looking on trying to understand reality as informational based and holographic and that's what i've experienced since i was four years old so right. i'm really good with that <laughs> <laughs> i'm really cool with that <laughs> uh, moving on you for much of the 1980s and 90s you worked as an accountant and had a high-powered business career but by the mid 90s you changed your direction what was it that made you decide to go a different way i just felt i'd i'd been there bought the t-shirt. Um, I was very fortunate. I, I worked in organizations and worked for bosses who really recognized what they saw as, as, as my financial talent, as it were, and, and gift for hard work. Um, and I just progressed and I got to a very senior level. I think in the, in the very early nineties, I got appointed to the main board of a, of a very large company. And that made me the most senior businesswoman in Britain. And I was very fortunate. I traveled the world doing some very interesting work, a lot of transformational work within organizations. But by the mid-90s, I literally had got to the point where I'd done it and it really wasn't challenging me anymore. And at the same time, I was feeling from a spiritual perspective that there was, a, a, a if you like, a, a deeper purpose um, to my being here. And I really had to step into that. It was almost as though all those threads of my life up till then were just coming into um, a point where I needed to take all of that experience, all of, of what I could offer and, and take it into service, into service of, of what I could see as, as a coming shift of consciousness for us all. Right. Cause obviously I'd like to move on to your writing. Um, what I want to ask you about your, your book, The Eighth Chakra, you mm. describe, which you describe as the bridge between our ego-based perception and our higher awareness. Could you explain what this concept means in a little more detail? Well, it really goes back to, to how I was experiencing, you know, realities from a very early age. And, and of course, at that point and from then on, I was also reading about the spiritual traditions of, of people throughout time and around the world. And, you know, uh, there are universal sort of principles. If you, if you go beneath the surface of a lot of, I suppose, religious um, teachings, dogmatism at that, you know, top level, you shake it down to the original teachings um, of the main world religions, but also the ancient spiritual traditions. And they all talk about um, 
you know, ourselves as being microcosms of a macrocosmic consciousness. Um, Einstein called it cosmic mind. We may call it God, uh, spirit, whatever we do want to call it. But essentially that when we come into our human form, um, we take on a personality, but that personality is a tiny part of our overall consciousness, our soul, if you like. And so what I was experiencing all my life and then in the late 90s, it suddenly went on to a whole new level. I started to experience how my own personality, my own persona consciousness was expanding beyond those perceived uh, barriers, boundaries, limitations, whatever you want to call it, and connecting to a much higher transpersonal sense of who I really was. And as I traveled the world, I was recognizing and working with and exploring with others, the elders of many traditions who were also experienced this, if you like, move between our personal sense of who we are and a much greater sense of, of who we really are. Um, and that has been the quest of spiritual, um, the spiritual path, you know, throughout time. But what I feel is happening now is it's, it's available to all of us. You know, it's not just the great mystics, the great teachers who've explored this path. And like Buddha achieved this sense of oneness. And as Jesus has, you know, taught the, the, the oneness of love, it's there for all of us. So the eighth chakra really, is my way of, of, of sharing how this is happening within all of us as we expand beyond those perceived limitations of, of, of a Jude and a Mark and, and whoever to a recognition and a remembering of the vastness of, of who we really are. Right, because you mentioned briefly about going on a series of journeys, which uh, you, you did over a period of five years, and yep. the story of your journeys was published in the book, The 13th Step. Um, the book was about your mission to activate 12 solar disks at, at various ancient sites. Uh, yep. I, know, I know we can't really go into too much detail, because <laughs> there's, there's lots of places you went to, but you visited such countries as Egypt, Australia, China, Peru, Hawaii, and England, of course. What would you say were the highlights of this sacred journey? Um, or, waking or are there up. too many, too many to, to discuss? Yeah, waking up. You said, yeah. I think the highlight was waking up because I started those journeys having, for getting on for fifty years, forty-five years or thereabouts of these experiences, um, and feeling that a, an enormous transformative change was coming, not just for ourselves but for Earth. You know, Gaia as a living being, and I, and, and as I I felt our entire solar system. And it was literally a step-by-step -step initiation, uh, for want of a better word, into that understanding of how um, within our universe, solar systems evolve, just as people evolve and collective races evolve. So do solar systems. Our whole universe is a a process of consciousness exploring itself and, and evolving. So it was a, 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 an incredible ongoing experience of what was happening, what was expanding and what was coming as we approach what the Mayan uh, calendar called the end of an era. Um, and many spiritual traditions and many elders perceive as the end of a great era 
of human uh, evolution and the opening, the beginning of a whole new level of of our perception of of who we are and and what the world's about. And so, to try and identify a particular highlight, the whole the whole process, the whole journey that really lasted those five years um, was truly a waking up um, and an understanding of this incredible bigger picture perspective of what's going on and that I wrote about in the 13th step. And I, as you know, I continue to write about it in my latest book, which is called Hope, Healing Our People and Earth, because this is a healing process. It's literally... You know, a dismemberment of our collective uh, persona and, and world into a, a whole remembering process of the wholeness of, of all that we call reality. Hey, moment. You, you beat me to it there because I was just about to mention hope because um, <laughs> it, obviously it came out last year, but it, it's a yeah. book which looks in detail at the current situation in several countries in the world as we approach the 21st of December 2012. Um, you mentioned countries like USA, the UK, China, Japan and Israel. Can you say why you chose these particular countries and not others? Well, what I, I mean, you know, hope could have been five times the size it was, yeah. but, but it's really distilling this understanding of, of profound interconnectivity of all that we are and all that we call reality. And as a healer, I've worked with many, many thousands of people around the world over many years. And what I've discovered, um, first of all, you know, I, I use that word with care, healer, because my own sense is that we never heal anyone else. All we can do is be in service to empower them to undertake their own healing. But what I found was that within our personality energy field, which is how we experience being human, we um, embody all those experiences, but we also hold on to stuff. <laughs> Let's face it, we all hold on to stuff, you know, um, and we judge things, we judge ourselves, we play around patterns of behavior, etc. And I earlier mentioned that, you know, the, the, the leading edge science now is understanding the world in the way that many ancient traditions did, is that everything not only is interconnected, but plays out on all scales, all levels, from the person to the family to the nation to the collective, you know, from the, from the most minute to the mightiest scales, experiences and, and, and consciousness plays out. So, the same sort of patterns we hold as individuals, you know, patterns of abuse, abandonment, betrayal, rejection, denial, we play out within families and we play out in nations and, of course, we play out collectively. So as part of the bigger picture of this shift, I wanted to share my perspective of almost looking at nations as if they were people and looking at the, the the traumas that nations hold, the patterns that nations hold. So I look at their history. I look at their astrology. I look at their stories. I look at their personalities of nations to try and help readers and try and help people who are making decisions understand that we, when we look at nations in this way, some of the perhaps intransigent-looking issues – Actually, just as for individual healing, um, a healing can be found. A resolution, a resolution can be found. Right, because one of the things that struck me from the book, Hope, is that 
you say that both the USA and the UK are perhaps the most divided countries in the world. Yeah. What, what do you mean by this exactly? Well, there are some very, very, very good books on this. Um, one being a, a book called The Spirit Level and that I refer to in Hope, which shows that when countries are unequal, um, and I'm talking in terms of opportunity, social mobility, and ultimately, you know, financial, the haves and the have-nots, then that inequality really does play out on every level. And what the Spirit Level book showed is that such inequality is, um, is, is, is unhelpful at the very best and, and problematic and dangerous at the worst for everybody in that society. It just divides people. People do lose hope. They lose hope of possibility. You know, America had this idea of an American dream that as the inequality has got wider and wider, the 1% and the 99% for many has become the American nightmare. And when people, when this inequality gets to the level that it has grown to both here and in the States, those that have tend to move to be more selfish. So things like social cohesion, um, social opportunities, infrastructure, basic education, all the things that hold a society together and promote the well-being of a society as a whole tend to fall apart. And that's very much what's been happening with the states and very much we are in danger of here, although I do feel a greater positivity here um, for a healing of that than at the moment I see in the states. Okay, because um, obviously here in Britain we're on the verge of the Olympics starting. Exactly. Um, why, why Britain, first of all, and what is the opportunity here for Britain with the, as the rest of the world focuses on us? I think I, I don't, don't just think it's for the Olympics. I also think the Diamond Jubilee has a great part to play. And, you know, when I, as I write Hope and all my other books and as I, I share my, my understanding, it's very much that all these things play out on many, many different levels. And what we see happening on the physical level, as it were, the, the physical realm is just one of many, many different levels of consciousness exploring itself. And I do feel that as we go through this transformative opportunity of the shift that the Mayans talk about, you know, not the rubbish about the end of the world, but, you know, the end of an era that that's, you know, really set in many ways separated us from the from the, the larger understanding of who we really are and the interconnectivity of all that is. As we really come, I hope, to the end of that unsustainable era new understanding is expanding and emerging. And I think for us here in the UK, um, the Diamond Jubilee and the Olympics are both helping us to energetically, as well as physically, find ways of coming together again as community. And I also feel that on spiritual levels and on energetic levels, the actual Olympic torch, which was lit at the Temple of Hera, the goddess of the hearth, the mother goddess in Greece back in May, that journey held by, you know, 8,000 people over 8,000 miles and reaching every part of, of the UK and all that the Queen is doing to visit so many parts of the land through this year, it's, it's energizing our 
reconnectivity between ourselves and also also I believe between ourselves and the land and we have a very 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 ancient communion between ourselves and this amazing land that you know we call England or and Britain and the United Kingdom with Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland but the most ancient name for Britain was Albion mm. and I found that name now being used I've used it all my life but I'm finding that name now being used by many many more people and for me it's almost like a sign that that reconnection and that um, healing of that connection is is happening and when that happens as it does when someone individually heals within themselves um, that ripples out that consciousness that healing just ripples out throughout our collective psyche Okay, I'd like to talk about the weather as we Brits do, <laughs> um, be, because it sort of ties in with what you're saying. Because we've had so many extremes of weather, not just in Britain but all over the world. What What do you think is going on there, really? Well, for me, I mean, on a on a very physical level, inevitably with climate change, um, any heating um, of the the earth. Um, will actually lead to more extreme weather patterns. Uh, I've written a lot about this in, in, you know, various articles as well as some of my books. But I would say that the shift of consciousness that's happening for us on a collective level is also a shift of consciousness of Gaia. I mean, the ancient Greeks named the earth Gaia, the living goddess of, of the earth. And um, back some years ago now, a scientist called James Lovelock brought forward uh, what he called the Gaia hypothesis, that the Earth is interconnected at a very profound level. He, at that point, would not acknowledge the Earth as a, as a sort of a living consciousness. Um, but many indigenous primary peoples do, and I certainly do, and work with other non-physical dimensions of Gaia's consciousness. So for me, Gaia and ourselves and all the beings that have lived on her and with her, a part of a sort of a co-creative evolutionary consciousness. So we shouldn't be surprised to see as we go through this transformative moment that she is as well. And I always say the more graceful that we can expand our awareness, the more gracefully we can move from that old dismembered perspective to a remembered understanding, the more we can move gracefully from a worldview that is based on essentially fear and separation to one that's based on love and communion, the more graceful she will be able to. Yes, because obviously in Britain we've had lots of rain over the last few months. Some people see this as a rebalancing for all the dry periods of weather we've had, whilst others see it as a type of cleansing or washing of the land. What, what, yep. What's your take on this? All the above. And um, I mean, from a very physical, from a very, you know, mundane level, the jet stream is is moving south, which is why we're getting it in the main body of, of the UK rather than northerly, uh, where it usually does. And, and you may have heard the last day or so that the jet stream is, is now beginning to move slightly further north so that hopefully next week and for the Olympics, if the jet stream is where it usually is, then we should be getting warmer, sunnier weather. Um, but I, I, I feel it's all of that. I mean, I've worked with the weather from a spiritual, energetic perspective for many years. 
and I do see the weather mirroring us and us, you know, we are co-creative evolutionary partners. But we, as we wake up, as we sort of begin to see uh, our realities in different ways, we begin to understand that deep interconnectivity, not just on a physical level, but the physical representing, as it were, the consciousness. Right. Um, one more thing about hope is you talk quite a little bit about money. Um, isn't the real problem with what's going on in the world based on money? Because a lot of people see that as the root of all the ills in the world today. Well, you know, the Bible said it's not money, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And I think that's very wise. Um, money, you know, at its most fundamental level is is energy. Um, but that energy has been distorted, and especially over the last generation, and even more so over the last probably 10 or 12 years. And there has been a sort of level of dysfunctionality that really has become epidemic. And the money system, the monetary system, the financial system now has yeah, is a dis-ease in that res- respect. You know, the ancient Greeks um, saw money as sacred. They used to hold their, the gold um, at the temple, uh, the altar of the Temple of Athena, uh, the Parthenon in Athens. And they asked Athena as the goddess of wisdom to oversee their use of money, their use of gold, so that it moved to support people. Um, and, you know, we've lost that sense of money as being sacred. And I, I do believe, and I've been writing articles on this, we need to return to a, a sense of, of money as being sacred in the sense that its flow supports people and planet hmm. rather than the greed. I mean, the, the level of speculation now, the derivatives market, which used to be in my good old financial days, a form of insurance to cover the uncertainty for, for, of business, you know, general insurance, um, has now grown as, as a sort of a, a monster, a virus has grown. The derivatives market, which is all speculation, is now 20 times as large as the entire global economy of products and services. Derivatives trading Basically, manipulation and speculation is now something of the order of $1.2 quadrillion a year. Now, that is not healthy. (laughs) Anybody's, anybody's measure. So I've been writing quite a bit on behalf of the World Shift 20 group that I'm on and, and, you know, my newsletters and in Hope and and elsewhere more recently. Um, You know, both the problems with the financial system, but also what we can do, because we can do things, but it takes our will to do that. There are many fairly straightforward things we can do as a collective to resolve this this issue and return money to its sacredness, return the financial system so that it actually supports people and planet Right. If you had the choice between the redistribution of money or the complete removal of money, which would you choose? It's a really great question. Um, I actually feel that this is a question that is of its time. Because as we expand our awareness, I feel that we will 
naturally move to something that is beyond money as we've known it. Um, but we're in a transitionary process. My view at the moment and over the next few years is that I feel that we can do some radical but simple things to stop the speculation. A financial transaction tax, for example, that very clearly targets hyper-fast transactions, which are two-thirds of transactions, which have nobody making any sort of overview of them. They're completely computerized and, and you know, I feel are likely to cause a, a major crash um, at some point. They will. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They will. So I think a financial, a global financial transaction tax against hyperfast transactions and against speculative transactions would actually stop a vast amount of the issues very quickly. And I also feel that there should be an immediate separation between so-called investment banking and so-called retail banking, which used to be the norm, and that all investment banking should be done on, in part on behalf of clients and not the banks themselves. I think if we put those three things into immediate manifestation, immediate action, a huge amount of the corruption, the manipulation, the speculation would stop overnight. Then you start to actually work with real money to support real people and the planet. And you start doing so in a way that is balanced and can actually support redistribution because so much of the inequality and the lack of redistribution has actually been based on this ridiculous amount of speculation. Um, the other thing I'd put into place is something that other people are suggesting, which is within organizations, the top management income should be capped at no more than, say, 20 times the average mm. employee. And those are things that used to be the norm. You know, this is not rocket science and this is not, you know, radical woohoo never been done before. This stuff used to be the norm. It's only in the last 20, 20 odd years, 25 years at the absolute most, that this unbelievably unhealthy distortion has exploded in terms of both corporates and corporate, or, you know, organizational behavior and, um, and the financial system and banking behavior. Okay, right, let's move on to um, sort of a bit more normality, because I know you live in Wiltshire, not far from Avebury and Silbury Hill. Is that what attracted you to move there in the first place, all the sort of energies there and everything? Of course, yeah. um, of course it was. I, I loved, I've always loved sacred landscapes because I've known at a very deep level and I've experienced their their wonder, their energies, what I've learned from them all my life. And so I've always loved Avebury and this whole landscape. But in the early 90s, I was also um, fascinated by the phenomenon of crop circles. And of course, Silbury and Avebury have been the epicenter of the worldwide um, crop circle phenomenon. And so I was very much attracted and started to experience and explore uh, crop circles um, so all of that brought me down here. And it's also on every level a beautiful, wonderful place to be, to live. So although I do, you know, my husband Tony and I do a lot of traveling around the world, this is where we come home to. This is our sanctuary. This is where our hearts are. 
this nurtures us at that very, very deep level always. Right, because I was going to mention uh, crop circles because obviously that's where you live is sort of like the epicenter of them. Um, yeah. a, a lot of people listening are, are getting confused because there's people who, who are coming forward and saying we made these circles and so on. How do you tell which are real and which are sort of man-made? I'd go beyond that question. And I, I felt for myself I needed to go beyond that question mm. many, many years ago. I, I, I now say I don't care. Um, I mentioned the Sistine Chapel a while ago. Um, do we really care that Michelangelo laid on his back for 10 years creating it? Or do we, when we look at it, see transcendence, see this amazing, exquisite, literary work of art? And what message does that give us? Um, for me, the crop circles, regardless of how they're formed, and by the way, I've done a lot of research, and my own view is that there is far more happening here than merely people going out into the landscape doing these. But for me, it's the message. It's, it's about what they've taught me about my own sense of reality, what they've taught me about my own perspective of consciousness, what I've experienced within them, what I've learned through them. I mean, the 13th step began because on the 3rd of May, 1998, I got a, a psychic guidance to go to Silbury Hill. And I lived a, a couple of miles, um, probably a mile or so west, uh, east of there at the time. Um, and the following morning, I went and climbed Silbury and looked down on this incredible um, double circle, crop circle in oilseed rape um, beneath me and gained an incredible sense of, of knowing, but what it was, I didn't know, but I knew something had moved. And as I write about in the 13th step, that literally began a whole process that led to those journeys. So that began with a crop circle. But before that, it began with a psychic message to go to Silbury. And I know to witness that crop circle. Because mm. obviously connected with the area around Wiltshire is the idea of UFOs and extraterrestrials. You, you do mention extraterrestrials in some of your books. Um, do you believe that we were visited by aliens in the past and are we still be, being visited by aliens? My own, again, it's more through my experiences and, and you know, nearly 60 years now of, of research and also talking to many elders of ancient traditions, including Credo Mutwa, um, the, the, uh, you know, the most senior Zulu in Africa, talking to Aboriginal elders, talking to Native American elders and, and many others. From them, it, it's, it's another day at the office. It's like, of course, there are extraterrestrials. Of course, they have visited in the past. Of course, they continue to do so. Um, you know, many of these elders have had their own direct experiences. And there's some interesting books coming out now. And I mentioned one in, in Hope of, you know, over many years, very uh, credible witnesses, airline pilots, uh, military pilots, uh, police people, you know, um, have had their own direct experiences. I have myself. And, you know, I think it's pretty insulting to say to those sort of people, to say to the elders of, of, of you know, um, very truthful people, 
and very experienced people who are great observers that this is all nonsense. I actually find it quite insulting. I also, as a physicist and astronomers now, and an astronomer, you know, astronomers now are, have, have discovered so many extrasolar planets circling, circling, you know, other stars that the view has gone from being, oh, well, there can't be many planets like Earth to, my goodness, our galaxy is probably, you know, replete with solar systems and planets that can actually support uh, biological life. So I think we're really, you know, the whole mindset is changing. I think I read a recent survey that said about a half of people in the UK are very strongly convinced of extraterrestrial life at a conscious and at a an advanced level. Hmm. Right. We're nearing the end of the interview now, but I've got perhaps the most important question I'm going to ask you is obviously to do with the 21st of December 2012 how should we be facing that and thinking about that and obviously beyond that date because there's been so much obviously written about and said about it what what do you think is is um going to happen or or will happen afterwards and so on <laughs> how should I know no. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I think anybody who says they know what's coming after mm. that, um, you know, I, I, I certainly don't. And I've been looking at this for all my life. And I know many, many other people have, and, and they would not claim to know what's happening beyond that. What I would say is that the elders that I speak to and my own experience um, is that, yes, we are in the end of an era. Um, I feel that the December solstice of 2012 is significant, but whether it's, it's a point in time that at the time itself passes without anything looking, you know, a, a tipping point. Often we only realize tipping points after the event. Um, so whether it is, you know, a, a, an all fireworks display or whether it's a moment that, that you know, ostensibly passes without change. I do feel we are in the end times of an era and the beginning times, the birthing times of a new era. So it's rather like a birth process. You know, is the, is the baby born when the head comes out or when the feet come out, you know? Hmm. And I feel that we're in the birth canal of something amazing and wonderful at the moment. What I'd also say is like any birth process, my mum used to go around and help the local midwife uh, many, many, many years ago. And um, whilst the midwife was doing various things, mum would be the one who was holding the hands of the expectant mother and saying, just breathe, just breathe. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's a time for us just breathing. It's a time, in my perspective, to make our choices. And it's not that we look ahead to December. It's about making our choices here and now in every moment. You know, do we make our choices out of fear or do we make our choices out of love? Because I've said this for many years and, and I'm continuing to say it. It's our choices in the here and the now that I believe will co-create whatever does happen in December 2012 and what does happen beyond then. And the more we can make our choices from love rather than from fear, and I mean that in every way, all the little choices we make, as big as, as well as the big stuff we, uh, we, you know, the big choices we make, 
that will make the difference. You know, do we make a choice to come together to support each other, to love ourselves, to love others, to be loved? Do we act kindly? Do we act from joy and in joy? Um, or do we go into old patterns, you know, the betrayal patterns, the abuse, the abandonment, the denial, the rejection? Yeah, you know, all those patterns that I talk about in hope and all those patterns that I really do feel we're able now to heal and to resolve. That's what for me 2012 is about. And, and what we choose will determine and co-create what comes after. All right, that's great. I've just got one final question I want to ask you. Um, I know you're a very busy lady, but what have you, else have you got lined up for the rest of the year? Because I know you, you're going to be speaking at Glast- the Glastonbury Symposium in, in a few weeks' time. What, what other things have you got planned? I am. I'm leading a, a group a journey, a sacred journey, through Albion for the week leading up to the Olympics, which I'm very much looking forward to. I am speaking at uh, Glastonbury, as you mentioned. I have a weekend, my only weekend workshop down um, with Susie Anthony at a place called the Manor House uh, down near Glastonbury uh, in early August. Um, I'm speaking at a, a couple of conferences in September. Um, but in, in terms of any of those events, um, if people want to come on my website and go to the events section, of the website, they'll see whatever is forthcoming. But my guidance this year has really been to keep as much open as possible. My schedule is usually filled to the gunnels, but this year I've really been guided to just be open, to go with the flow of whatever comes and just follow that. And I suppose if I was to invite our listeners, it would be to pretty much do the same Go with what calls them. Go with the flow of these amazing transformational times and perhaps find some space to reflect, some space to deal with anything that is still coming up for them um, and find ways of, of embracing that and releasing that to be as free as we can be, to be as light as we can be, to be as flexible as we can be, because in a way we're being invited to become newly born again. Right. Well, with those fantastic inspirational words, I'd like to thank you, Jude, for being interviewed today and for all all that you've said, all, all the advice and the inspiration. Thank you, Jude. You're very welcome, Mark, and thanks to you and to Ian for all the great work you do, and thanks to all our listeners. Much appreciated.